Welcome to Studio 7500. Yes, we're back. We haven't done this show in a long time. I know you've missed us. So, you know, here we are. We're back. And we're better than ever, aren't we, Jamie? We are better than ever. Actually, we were traumatized by the earthquakes. So we couldn't come back. <laughs> Actually, Greg missed the earthquake. Yeah, I missed both of them. So, But I heard about them, even halfway around the world. So... You know, what that, are you going to do? Yes, that was, it, they were quite scary, actually. Although the shakers weren't as big as others that I've endured. But I, I tell you, the one, I endured the one in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Yes, um, in 1989. Yeah, that was really terrible. Brutal. So every time I feel the shaking starting, I start to get flashbacks of that day, that miserable day. So you, you, When you, you were in kindergarten? Yes, that's right, Greg. That, yeah, that's why we're best friends. He always is pumping my ego. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, we're in the middle of summer, and we just had a sore yesterday. I saw... What's some a sore? Our, some of our listeners are going to know what sore is. orientation. Okay. So they kind of walk you through. In fact, go on our Instagram right now. Um, uh, I'm like, what's our Instagram? Um <laughs> it's been that long. <laughs> Woodbury underscore university, and you can um, play back the entire day um, from, you know, they uh, sitting, listening to people tell them stuff, to eating, to getting their ID. You know, it's kind of exciting. So, yeah, so right now we're doing uh, orientations. I'm not doing them, but you know what I mean. And I think we have like another month or so, and classes start. So, you know, parking's good right now. It's the weather's nice. You know, we're just trying to do our thing. So, um, so anyway, what, what's your story, Jamie? Well, it's been a it's been a great summer. We haven't had quite that much heat like that we're used to here mm-hmm. in Southern California, but um, it's been pretty mild. But I haven't done anything really exciting yet. I'm, I'm not as fortunate as you, Greg, to go to Africa. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we'll do a show about it. Yeah, it was. It was actually pretty incredible. Tell so, the, tell the listeners in a brief. In a, I don't you want know, you to go. No, I can't be brief. <laughs> brief what you did. So I went to. I was in Senegal, and uh, it was pretty pretty interesting. Really looking touring around the country and seeing different things. It was really um, eye opening. Yes, he did said say it put everything into perspective yeah. when coming back to work. Yeah. It's all in perspective. So, so yeah, that's what I was doing. And you've just been working a lot. Yeah, I've been working a lot and uh, saving up for my next big trip, which I hope is going to be Croatia. So, oh wow, yeah, looking into that. Are you going to go to? Isn't that where where Mamma Mia was filmed? Was it? I don't. Oh no, that was Greece, wasn't it? Or no, I, it's I, supposed oh. to be Greece, but it was oh. filmed. Oh, okay, whatever. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, no, I've heard it's beautiful. Yes, so that's that's what's on my agenda. But as of now, just plugging away, working, um, yeah, just kind of enjoying life. 
But happy to have had a, a, a slower summer here at Woodbury. Well, actually, with our podcast, because no one's here. <laughs> we with the students out. We, we haven't been able to do the show on a weekly basis, which we normally do. But we do have an amazing guest here today who we'll introduce after this short break. Well, let me just, before we go on before break, go on let break, me just remind worry. people... We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, we're on TuneIn. So find us, rate us, share us, subscribe to us. We can't wait to, you know, we've spent a few weeks since we've had a new show, so I'm excited to get this one out there because I know it's going to be a good one. And yeah, we're getting lots of listens from all over the world. So thanks for listening. Keep listening. Um, if you want to know more about Woodbury, um, you know, check us out on social media. I already mentioned our Instagram, Woodbury underscore university, or you can check us out on Twitter, which is, um, why am I forgetting? Oh, you know what? Just go to our website and you'll find all of our Like it's our been so long that there. I'm like, I don't even know what our Twitter, what's Twitter? Um, <laughs> And by the way, Twitter is suppressing us. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to get too political today. But anyway, um, yeah, so let's, why don't we take a short break and we'll be right back with our guests. Studio 7500. This is Jamie and Greg, and we are joined today with a very special guest. We're so happy that she was available to join us today after we've been trying to get her on the show for months. So um, please welcome Emily Bills. She is a professor here at Woodbury, professor of urban studies in our College of Liberal Arts, COLA. In other words, COLA. So welcome, Emily. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. You make me sound so in demand. Well, you are. You <laughs> it are. Was, it was weeks and weeks of trying to get you. So, oh. <laughs> Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. You're so welcome. So what we usually do on this show is just to kind of put it in your lap. We want you to, um, let's just start out with you giving us some background about yourself and uh, where, where you're from and how you ended up at Woodbury. And I guess we'll just start with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a native Californian, um, but I grew up on the other side of the state from in Northern California. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and I had, you know, an, a sort of standard childhood, lived in the suburbs in the South Bay um, area, and at the same time, a not-so-standard childhood in that my parents um, were and are politically left and very politically involved. Um, so I grew up, you know, having sort of these two lives, one where I just, you know, lived in my community and went to school and did the things kids do and shopped at the mall. And the other side was um, demonstrations, holding signs and helping my parents put out a newspaper and all of that kind of work. Um, wow. So a very strong sort of social justice upbringing. Um, and I think that influenced me a lot. Um, 
but perhaps not right away. I uh, decided to go to college, of course, um, and that's how I got here, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I think I wasn't ready to go into political science or an area like that. Um, so I went to community college. Um, I come from a very working class background. Um, I'm first generation college, and community college just seemed like the path that was laid out for me at that time, um, and very proudly so. I had an incredible experience at community college and found my way into an art history program, which seemed to merge my love for visual culture and politics at the same time. Um, so it was a good fit for me. And then I went on and transferred to Berkeley, um, which was kind of funny. I always swore I'm never going to go to Berkeley because I spent so much time as a child so handing out leaflets. Oh, yes, fun. yes. Oh, <laughs> I was always wow. at Sather Gate oh, handing wow. out leaflets um, and, you know, joining in protests for nuclear disarmament and... Um, all kinds of issues. So, but then I, you know, in my heart, it's where I felt I was um, best suited to go to college. So I went amazing. there and um, got my bachelor's degree in art history. Mm. So back up, what about, what's this newspaper that your your parents put out? Yeah, uh, my parents are part of a political organization that put out a newspaper. Um, it was called The People. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, th that's what they, they did. Did they write um, articles for the paper or were they? Um, all kinds of people wrote articles for the newspaper. My father was the editor um, and my mother helped with copy editing and also did administrative work. Um, I remember as a young child before we had computers, I'm aging myself a little bit, but setting the type. Mm -hmm. um, and there was always, you know, once a month there was a night that we're putting the paper out tonight and you know our parents would come home very late or we'd be at the office with them mm -hmm. um, watching them put out the paper and then you know distribute it to newsstands and and hand them out so it was quite a production um, it was fascinating from a political perspective but also from the perspective of what it takes to write uh, a, for a newspaper um, the entire communications process mm -hmm. um, and to yeah to put that out in the world um, was a good a good learning opportunity for me so let's go back to Berkeley and how was your experience there Berkeley was incredible um, I have to say it was eye-opening for me in a number of ways um, I mean certainly I had that kind of Berkeley sensibility in me already from from childhood but the opportunities that opened up for a kid of you know very modest background in terms of my economic background was exciting so being able to access all kinds of resources um, was was um, something that sort of changed my life in a lot of ways I think I became an intellectual at Berkeley, um, just because of what was available there, the Pacific Film Archives, the types of performances, the people, the speakers who came to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, seeing Carrie Mae Weems talk about her art as a young art history student um, interested in racial politics and photography changed um, a, a lot of things for me, seeing Alvin Ailey dance revelations and um, these kinds of things that were possible at Berkeley. I have to say another thing that I've sort of reflected on as 
I've become more involved with urban studies is that I lived in a cooperative at Berkeley. And so I teach a class now on alternative housing, and it's interesting how that loop has kind of come around to the undergraduate experience and how much I enjoyed being part of a community in that way in a kind of alternative housing environment. Mm -hmm. um, and now teaching different ways to live in the world and helping my students think about those, those ways of occupying space. Um, two questions. First, what community college did you go to? I went to West Valley Community College in Saratoga. Yeah, and that, uh, we always talk, I mean, we've talked about it before. It's actually really, um, I mean, I guess we shouldn't say this, but I think it's great. <laughs> and I think it's a, it's a great, like a lot of our students have that trajectory mm -hmm. where they spent a, a year or two at community college and then transfer here and I think you know it's definitely you may have been ahead of the curve a little bit but it's a big thing now for mm -hmm. students to do and it's a really great path to go down I think um especially with the cost of right maybe we shouldn't be saying that either <laughs> no, we're no. editing editing this no, out. No. whenever you say that I distinctly don't edit no, it yeah. I always like mm -hmm. amplify that part okay good well I think uh, that's you know that's something that helped me to well, it not helped me, but it was something that really excited me about teaching at Woodbury um, with a student body that a lot of students had come from community college, and I really right. identify with that experience. I had a wonderful community college experience. I think it's an important way if you don't know exactly what you want to do at the age of 17. I mean, who does? A lot of people here at Woodbury do, and I'm very impressed by our student body and their ability to be sort of self-knowledgeable in that way. But I certainly wasn't right. at that time. And so um, I just knew that I loved to learn. I loved the arts, music, and dance, and fine art. And I was able to take classes in all of those areas and sort of decide where I wanted to go. Did you end up, uh, or did you go to grad school at Berkeley also? Or? No, for uh, my path after that, became a little windy, <laughs> I would As say. they often do. <laughs> yeah, um, I initially wanted to go into interior architecture. Mm -hmm. So I went to a three-year graduate program at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. and um, uh, But I entered that program from an art history background. Um, and I loved what I was doing. I, I absolutely um, am... I think it was very positive to have the studio experience, and it continues to inform my ability to help students learn in urban studies classes, many of whom here at Woodbury, of course, are studio students. So that was important for me. Um, but I just found myself sort of unable to translate sort of contextual issues into design. You know, I was very interested in why artists and architects looked at social issues and translated them into physical form. And either I didn't have the guidance or the maturity, or maybe I should have just stuck with it. I didn't really know how to look at the world around me and translate that into meaningful design work mm -hmm. um, in a way that really vibed with, you know, my upbringing and uh, my interest in social justice and, and that kind of thing. So I decided to go back to a research-based program um, and applied to the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University, which is a the graduate art history program at NYU, and entered their PhD program. And, you, and so that's where you got your PhD? 
I did, um, in the history of architecture and, and urban planning. So sort of merging my interests in visual culture and, you know, interior architecture and architecture to a history-based mm-hmm. research. And were you, were you hoping to teach at a university? Was that your hope, to be a professor? Um, I wish I would say I was that mindful about it. Um, I think I just had an, a, a great love of research and learning and studying and being in it, like being in that environment, talking with people and traveling and studying on site. And in some ways, I saw the PhD as I mean, I'm being totally frank here. As an end goal in itself, I think earning a PhD and having an opportunity with graduate funding Mm -hmm. to essentially write the first draft of a book is an idyllic opportunity. Um, And I was lucky to be in a very well-funded and, you know, internationally recognized PhD program where I received the support that a working class kid otherwise would not you know, be able to attend. So, um, but once I started doing it, and I started teaching pretty young in my mid-20s, starting to develop metropolitan studies classes at the New School, which is a Mm -hmm. large university in New York, I I just loved it. I just fell in love with teaching. I'm a little naturally shy, so I still, to this day, get a little nervous on the first day of class. Um, I don't know if it shows. My Not students can chime in here. <laughs> it doesn't show here, at least. Um, I think that's yeah. good, though. You know, it keeps you humble, right? Like, to be a little nervous rather than, you know, because maybe you're more open to realizing that... It's a two-way kind of conversation. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, one thing that I really loved about teaching is, one, you have the opportunity to just continue researching, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully in your area of interest as much as possible, Um, and then to have great conversations with a whole bunch of brilliant people who bring their own life experiences to the table, and we can challenge each other and debate. And I know it's a it's a cliche, but I do learn from my students all the time. Um, and that's just an exciting place to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, after that experience, I decided I wanted to teach. And I came to Los Angeles on a fellowship at the Huntington to complete my, my doctoral thesis and then stayed here in L.A. How long were you in New York? You must have been in New York for a while then. Eight years. Yeah. Yeah, it was very hard to leave. Right, you have to uh, talk about where you lived. It's not all about me. <laughs> Is this the conversation we all the neighborhoods we lived in and what no. trains you had to take no. to get across I, town? I was just curious. You guys can do this off the show. We're making conversation. Um, I'm just jealous. I took the G train to the uh, F train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, that's exciting. You're, you have a, an exciting path, and I think it's the kind of path that, you know, a lot of people look at with envy and say, wow, you know, that's what I want to do. So one of the questions I have is, you know, as a faculty member in our uh, college, <laughs> college, of, <laughs> college of Liberal Arts, um, you know, you often interact with students who unlike many of our students here, aren't on a track toward becoming, you know, an architect or a game designer or whatever. So how do you, how do you relay your experience to those students to help sort of guide them 
because I was similar to you, and now I'm going into my long qu- question. <laughs> but like I, I, I studied history. I got a, a master's in history. Like it was like I liked the idea of learning, and I do think I gained so much from from my liberal arts education um, that I still carry with me today, which I think is really critical. Uh, these sort of skills like the ability to to write and to analyze things and and all of that and i just like i guess i'm talking so much and jamie's gonna make fun of me but like in this environment that we're in where it's very much like i'm going to be x or i'm going to be y how do you talk to students who don't know that? Because look, most of us don't, right? So, or I say, ah, so I'm not a student, but you know what I mean. I'm gonna stop my <laughs> answer. Yeah, um, I think I, my simple answer is it's not hard at all to encourage students to have a love of learning. I think that comes naturally. Um, and one of the, th- I think it comes naturally to us as human beings. And if the topics are enticing, and you can help the, the subjects that you're discussing, and you can help students relate to them and to their own lives and to what's going on in the world around us. You don't really need that much more, um, which isn't to say that you know, I, have, I don't put a lot of thought into curricu- curriculum and pedagogy, um, absolutely, and that's something that I really enjoy doing, building curriculum is one of the things that I love about being an academic. Um, but I think, you know, I've been teaching for a long time, um, and I've found that, you know, have a, some good discussion questions and have some readings that, are, that excite students that they can relate to, um, and you, you find that, that things just sort of take off. Um, we have no problem having great debates and conversations in urban studies classes. Um, Another thing is, you know, I've I've found myself developing an urban studies program, which is, it's not a a huge step away from where I came from in terms of my academic research. Um, Certainly not my research, maybe the program itself. Um, But urban studies lends itself to that kind of straddling between studying history and, and sort of practical world application. And that's something that I really love about it. So, you know, in a classroom, we'll talk about historical circumstance behind whatever at issue it is, if it's food justice, if it's community development. Um, but our projects often take us out into the neighborhood. We work with organizations. We develop actual things that people can use and, and, and apply to their lives in different communities. So I think we, we straddle that pretty well. Can you um, give us an example of one of your projects? Sure. Um, one I'm particularly proud of from a couple of years ago um, uh, was a, it was just a current issues class. Um, you know, those sort of broad topics that you can plug things into, which I love. Um, but a group of students and I partnered with Los Angeles Neighborhood Initiative, uh, which is a community organization that works with um it's a, it's a not-for-profit organization that works with communities to develop what they need within the community. And so we partnered with them and the Byzantine, Byzantine Latino District or neighborhood, which is part of the Pico Union area, and their Business Improvement District to develop something that they needed um, 
to improve their community. And this was an immersive kind of course. Somebody from Lonnie, from Los Angeles Neighborhood Initiative, worked with us and sort of co-taught with me. And we met at a site down in the community. And we didn't determine in advance what project we were going to do. The students went around from business to business and talked to people and asked them what they needed. And they told us what they needed, and we did it, um, which was really cool. And it was something very simple. It was a, a brochure that they could put on their counter that had a great map that illustrated what each of the businesses were on a particular street. And then um, the students also produced a video that they could use to promote the neighborhood and the business improvement district and to raise funding for the community. And I'm proud to say they're still being used, which was, it was really cool. Um, th that's really great because we often talk about Woodbury being sort of practice-based and, you know, you gain a lot of real-world experience. And often it's, you know, we, we, we neglect the fact that in COLA there's a lot of that going on too. And that's a perfect example of, you know, students getting out of a classroom into a real-world setting. It's phenomenal. That's really great. Yeah, that was a fun project. Um, I've had opportunities, too, to bring in other faculty who are doing interesting things in digital humanities. I had a, a faculty member who who worked in digital humanities while she was getting her PhD, and she, with the students, put together an online exhibition about uh, water resource use in Burbank, and the exhibition still exists online, but she also created a, a physical exhibition that we had here at Woodbury, and she partnered with um, the education department at the Autry Museum. Mm. Um, so, we, like I said, we like to, to do that in urban studies. Um, we're very lucky to be at Woodbury where we have students with incredible skill sets. Mm. And so it's easy to divide a class into those who can do graphics right. and those who can actually build things and students who are great at thinking like uh, business marketing right. um, and you know doing communications for whatever project we're working on. So I think those collaborations, and then of course with a strong historical base and a strong theor theoretical base and to bring these things together is what makes urban studies really fun to teach. Can you tell us a little bit about what urban studies is in a nutshell just for I mean, Jamie and I are well-versed and know everything about it, but uh, <laughs> potentially some of our listeners may not know. So can you give us, like, the, the you know, the elevator pitch? Sure, sure. Um, well, urban studies in some ways is an emerging field, although there are some great programs um, around the country. There's a great one at Stanford and a few others um, that I've been interested in sort of modeling ours after. Um but it's, it's the study of urban development and how it functions. Um, it's interdisciplinary at its heart. Um, so courses that we offer here at Woodbury um, are, are pretty diverse. We, we talk about transportation, um, borders and population movement, food justice, um, all kinds of topics that influence how cities develop and how we live in them and function in them. One issue that you hear, and I don't know if you you're doing this or will be doing it, but how climate change will affect urban areas. That's been a big issue in terms of, you know, how they adjust and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say about 
80% of our classes have a strong emphasis in environmental sustainability and the impact that climate change is having on cities and how cities contribute to climate change. Um, it's become sort of at the forefront of, of a popular class I teach. Um, and I don't just say that because, you know, I think my classes are popular or whatever, but there's a lot of students who are really interested in food justice. And so I teach a class called Food in the City, um, in part because it was an area of interest for myself, in part because I think an urban studies program needs to have a class like that, but also because students were asking about it. Um, and so I developed this course and it has been very popular. Um, and one of the things that we introduced in that class that students maybe hadn't thought about is how uh, industrial farming, how the beef industry, all of these things on a global scale can contribute to climate change. Um, and so that's been something really interesting for students to talk about. So the students that um, are in your classes, clearly not not all of them know what field, what they want to get into, what they want to pursue in their careers. But those that who do know, what what are what are some of the careers choices? Yeah, urban studies can take you in a lot of different directions. I mean, certainly you can use it as a base to go into graduate school, um, and the careers there are pretty numerous. The directions you can go. Um, I always think law is a great one. Um, anyone working in government an urban studies degree is helpful for that. Um, people who are interested in not-for-profit work and community development and community outreach mm -hmm. are some popular areas. Um, yeah. That makes sense. I have a, a student um, who's interested in public health. Mm -hmm. um, she is in the interdisciplinary studies major and minoring in urban studies and has done internships with homeboy industries mm -hmm. um, and is interested in alternative housing and and public health can you talk a little bit about interdisciplinary studies here because it's really an opportunity like we don't allow students to come in undecided at least at this point i think um, i'm going to use my enormous power here to change that <laughs> <laughs> but Do um it, Greg. <laughs> But it, it's probably the closest, I guess you could say, to coming in undecided. But but um, but uh, but obviously, it's not about being undecided. It's about actually pulling a bunch of different things together and creating your own sort of academic experience. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I actually think that interdisciplinary studies is one of the coolest majors out there. Um, and I also think it's one that fits an emerging generation of students more than any other in some ways, in that a lot of people these days, they don't fit into a traditional professional box, and nor should they, because as we know, um, you're jumping from different kinds of jobs and needing different kinds of skill sets and needing that kind of flexibility in today's economy. Um, so I actually think students coming into interdisciplinary studies, the, the challenge that they have is being, in some ways, less like an undecided student and more like a student who just hasn't really been understood by traditional academia, but knows very well what their areas of interest are. Um, and these interests are often overlapping with each other. Um, and in some ways, um, it's, it's exciting because they get to develop what they want to study. And they do this through a kind of reverse engineering. So they look at, you know, certain mentors that are 
doing work that they would like to do or certain jobs, and then they sort of reverse engineer that in developing their own curriculum um, using all of the different resources that we have on campus so they can merge together two or three different majors, usually two, but um, not necessarily, and then develop the curriculum themselves, which is something we usually do as faculty, right? But this puts that, um, that experimentation or that thoughtfulness into their hands. And with a lot of help, of course, and a lot of guidance, um, but that gives them a kind of agency in their own, in their own education. Um, a lot of these students are very entrepreneurial-minded, um, which is the right kind of student you want to be as you go out into the world these days. Right. I think. Yeah, no, it's great. Mm-hmm. No, I was saying you've been with Woodbury. 12 years or so? Something like that. Yeah. So <laughs> how, how did you make your way to our campus? Yeah, well, I came out to Los Angeles because I was doing a dissertation on an L.A.-based topic, um, much to the the shock and awe of my parents, you know, Northern Californians. What is she doing in Southern California? <laughs> Why would you want to live in L.A.? Um, but I absolutely love Los Angeles and uh, wrote an entire dissertation on it. Um, and I was at the Huntington and then started working at USC, got a, a position working there. Um, at the Huntington? At the Huntington Library. Oh, right, in right. San Marino. Yes. Okay. Um, right, absolutely. So I had a, a fellowship there. Um, which I started in in March, um, coming from New York, where mm. it was snowy mm. and drizzly, and you know that kind of mush that it kind of so gets on beautiful. the ground you, by March. Greg, you'd love it if you, you haven't been there yet. <laughs> oh, I've been. There. Oh, you've been. Yeah, okay. a couple of times. It's yeah, beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then so I went from that in New York, and then I found myself at the Huntington in this absolute paradise, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, this was a good move, mm-hmm. um, and started teaching at USC, um, and then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Where is that again? <laughs> I'm teasing. Never you. heard of it. I have a lot of great friends who are USC grads. <laughs> um, but I I was kind of wooed over to Woodbury by, um, it's kind of silly, but by somebody that I was dating who was teaching in the School of Architecture. Who was that? No, um, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and, and was really excited about what they were doing in the School of Architecture. Um, and, and then had an opportunity um, sort of in collaboration with them and, and the College of Liberal Arts, which had a, a completely different name at that time, um, to start developing urban studies courses. Mm. And then um, I think the ability to create a program and, you know, to design those classes and build curriculum and to have that, that sort of flexibility to do that was so exciting that I thought, yes, I'm going to leave USC and come <laughs> over to Woodbury and, mm-hmm. and, and do this here. And so um, I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. Why don't uh, we take just a brief ba- break and we'll be right back. We're back from our break. Welcome back to Studio 7500 with Greg Hool and Jamie Brown and our guest, Emily Bills. So, Emily, back to uh, you were saying that you, you've you taught at um, USC, whichever. What's USC, as we were saying before? Hmm. Um, University of... Um... <laughs> 
Sausalito. <laughs> anyway, and uh, and, you, and you're you're currently um, teaching here. I'd like to know what you see as the big differences between uh, teaching at a large university like SC and, and teaching here at Woodbury. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, certainly for an academic teaching at a university that has incredible research resources, having a large research library and a special collections and having um, people that you can work with across different departments that have access to those kinds of, of capabilities um, is, is really exciting for an academic. Um, and I do stay connected to a research library here in Los Angeles since we don't have that availability at Woodbury. Um, but that being said, um, I find that Woodbury fits me a lot better in some ways than a large university in terms of my my ability to develop programs, um, to have sort of the freedom to innovate curriculum. I've given a lot of opportunities here at Woodbury. I think being small in size gives you the ability to wear many hats. And I've worn a bunch of different hats here at Woodbury. I directed the Julius Schulman Institute for a while and had a crash course in running exhibitions and um, being a registrar. And I like to say doing everything from from putting out the snacks to working with artists. Um, and that was really great. And then developing an entire urban studies program was a great opportunity. Um, and now actually being director of communications for the college. So the the breadth of education that I've gotten as in, an academic professional um, here at Woodbury has been really wonderful for me. Would you say that here you've had a better chance to interact with students or is it the same regardless? Um, it, in my experience because of the types of classes I was teaching at USC it's the same regardless. Mm. The class sizes are about the same um, but I you know in some ways felt like I identified more with some of the students here on campus, and I certainly don't want to project my own experience onto, onto a very diverse student body that we have here. Um, but when I first started working here, I found that there were a number of students in my classes who were first-generation college, who maybe had transferred from community college, and we could identify with each other's paths and how we came into, in, into our sort of higher educational experience. Um, and that was really great for me. I, I like to identify with my students um, and then also to have them teach me about how they got to college and what they're interested in. So that fit my, my desire as an instructor really well um, to work with students. You've said, as you said, you've been teaching for a while now. Do you ever have students who come back? And, you know, I always thought that you know, if I were teaching, it'd be fun to have students come back like 20 years later and, you know, do you ever have that happen? Absolutely. Those are the, those are the, the glory moments, right? Those, those moments that sort of suck you in the heart where a student is doing something out in the world and they come back and they say, this class had made such an incredible impression on me. Um, and, you know, everybody comes to a class from different backgrounds and they gain different things from the material that you put out there and the, the conversations that you hope to engender. But, um, yeah, when you get those emails, I, you know, I have a little folder where I collect them yeah. and, and look back at them. And it's, it's really beautiful to be able to do that. That's so neat. Yeah. 
So let's talk about, you have a book uh, that came out about a year or so ago, right? Um, yeah, last April. So it's actually really, I, I have a copy of it. because oh, uh, thank you. Well, your publisher sent it to me. Oh, um, <laughs> good for them. I mean, As I they bought, should. I mean, I bought a million copies. <laughs> um, really fascinating. You know, um, it, it, so tell us a little bit about it. it you, you, and I, I know I should know it by heart, but <laughs> you look at the work of a... Uh, an architectural photographer named Marvin Rand. Right. So yeah. just tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Um, so, I, you know, I, I sort of joke that I have these these two research interests or these two research tracks. I actually think they overlap more than it seems like on the surface. But um, one is my, my research in urban history. And the other side is my research in architectural history. And um, most of my undergraduate work was looking at contemporary photography. And so... I've been really um, lucky to be able to merge my interest in photography with architecture. So I've, I do a lot of research in that area um, and finished this book last year with um, two colleagues of mine called California Captured. It was published by Fiden. Um, they do beautiful reproductions, um, which was great. And um, it's about an architectural photographer based here in Los Angeles um, who photographed everything from proto-modernism all the way through the modernist period um, and onward. We focused mostly on the mid-century period. Um, he was a contemporary of Julius Schulman and was just as prolific and, and important to architects getting their work out there. Um, I mean, this is, is, may be of interest to you guys also because, you know, how photography communicates architecture is part of the communications field, right? Um, how photographers interface with magazine publishers and, and other types of people who help promote an architect's work. So that was a really fascinating project to me. It was um, extremely labor intensive because the archive is 95% negatives and there's about 50,000. No, there's more than that. I think it's about 75,000 negatives in the collection. Um, and it's still in family hands. So a lot of it was, you know, conducted sitting on the floor of this, of this sort of archive in a, in a blase building in, in sort of Santa Monica area for years and years and years. Wow. It's incredible. And you're currently working on a book? I am. I have two books in the pipeline. Okay. Um, my dissertation is coming out as a book. I had sort of put the dissertation to, a si to the side for a while, um, but a publisher came to me and was interested in it, so I revived it. Um, and that's on the history of telecommunications infrastructure in Los Angeles. Mm. So I'm looking at how the history of telephone communications helped to develop the city, the city's um, geo-economy, so where economy located, where, you know, commercial industry located, um, and how it linked the city, or really the region, together. Um, so that will be coming out through the University of Pittsburgh Press. Um, and then uh, the other hat, again, is I'm working on another book about an architectural photographer named Wayne Tom. And he um, produced photography mainly during the late modern period, so from the late 60s through the 70s and into, into the early 80s. So fascinating. Um, talk a little bit about that. Like what, um, 
Just give us a little more on that. On the Wayne Tom project? Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is a great project. I'm really excited about it. Wayne is actually, um, he's still alive. He's in his mid-80s, and he lives in Los Angeles. So it's wonderful to work with him um, directly to have, you know, sort of, it's, I mean, what does a historian want more than to be able right. to talk to the to the actual people that they're that whose work they're they're investigating? So um, that's a that's great. Um, the archive is at USC, um, so it's also a local archive, which is nice. Um, and he just he Wayne worked with all of the big corporate offices, mm-hmm. creating the very large projects um, nationally, but you know, largely on the Pacific Coast. Um, So one of his most famous photographs is an image of the Bonaventure Hotel Mm -hmm. that ended up on the cover of Progressive Architecture and really helped to launch that building in the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, But also a lot of, you know, sort of dynamic uh, poured concrete work, um, which, you know, people liken to brutalism. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that term is sort of limiting in how really expressive concrete can be. A lot of mirrored glass architecture um, that sort of has behind it the history of Los Angeles's development as an aerospace mm-hmm. engineering center. Um, you know, what happens behind those mirrored glass facades is the birth of a, of a tech industry here in L.A. So there's some great history behind these photographs. And, of course, the photographs are also uh, spectacular, you know, beautifully composed and uh, wonderful to look at. People may not realize that, like, because you're, this is now your second book about a photographer of architecture. So that's kind of interesting. Like, these photographers helped kind of put this architecture, like, without the photography, right, the architecture may not have been what it was what it is now, right? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> like mid-century stuff. Little light bulb. Which, you know, it's so identified with, with Southern California, but it's because of the photography, right? Like what, tell us, is it a chicken and egg scenario? Like what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Your, your savviest architects always had a very good photographer on call and worked closely with their photographer because the majority of their work wouldn't be seen or known or remembered by... For posterity, without great photograph, right? right. Um, so, and you know, Richard Neutra was very savvy about this. Frank Lloyd Wright, and uh, my next book project um, um, in the works is on a photographer named Pedro E. Guerrero, and I've uh, curated several exhibitions on his work and and written about him. Um, and he worked closely with Frank Lloyd Wright, and you know that relationship was important to mm-hmm. to write um, because. A photographer is how your work gets out there. It's how it's known. And um, some architects and photographers work better together than others. They both tend to have very specific points of view on how um, imagery should be uh, created and, and put egos, out there. Right. there. Yeah, there are some egos out there for sure. Absolutely. Um, that's fascinating. I mean, so when when are you hoping to get your next book done by? What's your what do you have a goal on that? Yeah, well, the the telephone book as I call it is um, coming back from peer review. So I'll hope to finish that in the fall. And then uh, the Wayne Tom book, we're um, working to partner with uh, USC's um, with USC on an exhibition, and hopefully that will happen in the fall of 20. 
2020. That seems very soon. Maybe 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'll push that date back a little <laughs> bit. Um, but I know that publisher is eager to to get that writing done and to get those images in. So they're excited. Um, it's a it's a fun project to work on, but it, in some ways it's challenging for a publisher because whereas particularly us in Southern California are in love with our mid-century history, mm-hmm. um, those outside of, of academia and the architecture world are just starting to realize the importance of our late modern history mm-hmm. and the significance of those buildings and how they contribute to sort of our urban experience in a positive way. Um, so in, in some ways, the book is a, a kind of, you know, heritage conservation platform to pr- promote this period of time. So you're basically saying people haven't come around to it yet. They're like, ah. Oh. I mean, so, like so many of us have, of. but but um, can you market it yet? Can you, right. can you sell books? Um, so that's always a question in publishing, right? Yes, indeed. I work <laughs> actually work in publishing. Selling the books. Yeah. Yeah, that was always the question, and we could never do it. Um, <laughs> don't say that. The answer was always no. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not good. We don't want to hear that. The so the the telephone, the your dissertation telephone book as you the said. telephone book. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you get into that? area of looking at telecommunications in Southern California. I'm, I'm always curious about how these things develop. Like, talk yeah. a little bit about that. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I feel kind of a little bashful of thinking about it now, but, you know, I was in graduate school when the internet was really starting to be explored by scholars and the impact that um, sort of distance communications, either through video conferencing or, or you know, email communications might have on urban development. Um, and sort of a lot of research was being done on that in, in the 90s and the early aughts. Um, and I was just, you know, as a student of urban history, I was interested in, in the backstory. Mm-hmm. So uh, did telecommunications have the same kind of impact? Has there been any research on what, what happened in the late 19th, early 20th century mm-hmm. as the telephone started to um, really sort of infiltrate business um, as cities began to be wired and and regions connected. What did that look like? Um, And so that's how I I came to that topic and decided to focus on LA because um, as I found out after doing a little digging, we had more telephone subscriptions per capita by the 1890s in any city in the world. Um, and so there was a great story to be told about Los Angeles's communication history and, and what happened here. Well, do you know, can you tell us why that was in terms of why, why did the telephone um, infiltrate Southern <laughs> California faster? Yeah, I mean, there are, of course... A number of reasons, and you can read about them in my book. Oh, of course. <laughs> just, by the way, I, teaser. by the way, my my dissertation is on how the telegraph <laughs> transformed. Anyway, I'm just, just no, kidding. no, no. There's there's some Let's good go back reasons. even further. <laughs> right. Um, uh, some some great promotion. Um, mm. So sort of the head of the West the D- West Coast Division of Bell, this guy John I Sabin. Um, held a different perspective on telephone dissemination than than some uh, telephone managers in other parts of the country, and and his idea, which you know was very forward for the time, and that we understand better now, is that the more people who hook up, 
the better for the system. The, right. the more people that you have in the network, the, the better the network, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't actually how telephones were initially advertised. Mm -hmm. They were for strictly for business purposes, um, for, for commerce, that kind of thing, and not for casual conversation. Um, but he promoted it widely so that um, he was based in San Francisco so that, you know, um, so that there were, you know, they called them nickel in the slot pay telephones were, yeah. in, were in every business. They were in Chinatown. They were in, you know, um, immigrant Italian neighborhoods and mm -hmm. in, in butcher shops and things like that. And so that also happened in Los Angeles by extension. Um, but L.A. also, you know, I had a couple things that made it special. It was had a very large service-based industry, which depends on communications um, to, to promote the serv services, right? Um, fire industry, industry um, finance and insurance and real estate. And of course, we know Los Angeles had a very powerful real estate industry. Um, we were also kind of spread out, right? We had a very strong city center and it was important to wire that city center, but it was also important to make connections between outlying locations of agricultural development with the center and with the port. Um, and without telecommunications to do that, you wouldn't be able to, you know, talk with your vendor and know how many, you know, strawberries or oranges right. to stick on a train and, and send to San Pedro to, to, um, to ship out to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. So telecommunications were really important hmm. um, in part for that reason. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's. It's. I'm just like that is amazing. I mean, it's stuff that we don't think about, right, on a daily basis yeah. or ever. So, I mean, I think that's pretty cool. Do you have any other questions? I know we're we may be running out of time. Yeah, our time is short. Our but time is um, short. No, I mean, I think you know one of the things we really love is being able to do have this kind of conversation with our members of our faculty. Mm -hmm. You know, and really get into the weeds. So. You know, I think that's great. Like, yeah. are, is there anything um, that you want to talk about or that you're working on or that you're looking forward to in the future that you want to do address? Yeah. I'm going to put my director of communications hat back on um, and ask people to follow us on Instagram. There you go. Right? Woodbury underscore cola. Um yeah, yeah. And, and it's a good Instagram. There, you know, this we were talking about this before we went on, but like the whole, you know, people from Cola around the world series that you got going on. I love that. <laughs> Where oh, are you awesome. on your summer vacation? Oh, that's really right? cute. There's a lot of them too. I have to check that out. It's really good. So yeah, check that out and and um, yeah, see what we're up to. Um, what our students are doing. There's some some great student work coming out of the College of Liberal Arts, and our faculty are of course all lifelong learners, out there doing it. So the other thing I think we talked about this on a previous show, perhaps, but I know this past semester, Cola introduced the poetry. Um, corner or whatever it is like the open mic um yeah. like on the quad which is kind of cool i don't know if you want to plug that as well but i sh i'm sure that's going to happen uh in the upcoming semester absolutely um yeah mike songson started that program and it's it's a wonderful thing for and i'm always in awe of the students who go up in front of everybody and share their poetry and their spoken word with um 
with the community. It happens right outside of Woody's at lunchtime, um, which is a great location for it to happen. Um, and it's, it's very popular. And we often post sort of clips of students doing um, performing their poetry or their spoken word on our Instagram, or um, we feature it in our, in our newsletters. Yeah, so definitely check that out. And, you know, I'll just say, if you're a prospective student and you're like a lot of people, like I was, maybe like Jamie, although I feel like you probably knew since you were five years old what you wanted no, to be. No, I did not. Um, <laughs> I knew know, I wanted to be in communications, actually, but I didn't know exactly what. Um, but if you're like, you know, I really want that college experience, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do, definitely check out the programs in our College of Liberal Arts, um, you know, particularly the Interdisciplinary Studies program, which I know you're really, um, you know, you've got, you're, you're, I wouldn't say you're trying to build it up. I don't know what you're trying to, but like you're, you know, it's really, it's got some energy to it right now. And I think you have some, a good, a, a few students coming into the program in the fall. And it's so, you know, check it out because you can do your own thing there. And that's really exciting. And I think, it, as you had mentioned, it's the kind of thing that I think really kind of appeals to our Gen Z friends uh, who are coming in, our prospective students. So I know we would recommend definitely checking that out. They can connect with you, right, if they have Absolutely. questions? Absolutely. Right. So. Yeah. Your email's online. Uh, yeah, go to our website, and, and you can find a lot of great information about the programs under COLA, contact information of the program chairs, and uh, you know where to find us, right? Have we given them our our emails and all that fun stuff yet? So I stumbled over forgetting our Twitter which is weird, but it's Wood, Woodbury U. So, and same with our Facebook, Woodbury U, Instagram, Woodbury underscore university or Woodbury underscore cola if you want to check them out. Um, you can contact me directly, which I know you're dying to do, greg.hool at woodbury.edu. <laughs> Yeah, and you can contact me at jamie.brown at woodbury.edu. We'd check, love to hear from you. Also, check out our website. Get our latest news, um, woodbury.edu slash news. We just posted. We had a, a guest a couple weeks ago. Um, Dove. First, first Dove Presnell. Yeah, so we posted an interview with her as well. So if, you're, if you want even more information, it's up there. <laughs> We've got... Um, you know, we just recently did profiles of all of our ASWU um, board members or executive board members. So find out, read their stories. Um, we got lot, lots more stuff coming uh, once the new semester starts. So, yeah, check it out and see what we're all about. Yeah, thank you, Emily, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Good. Thank you. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to hearing more about what you're doing in the future. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you.